Today's episode of Beyond the Mask is presented by the insurance specialists at BrightThink Wealth Strategies. Find the disability insurance coverage that fits you best right now. Email Robert Smith at rsmithjr at financialguide.com. The show is also made possible by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. Get a free consultation today to be guided through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Just visit crnafinancialplanning.com. We'd also like to thank Helping Hands and OSA EMR for their support of the show. And don't forget, listening to our podcast can earn you Class B credits. For more information on how you can submit them, check out the CE Credit tab on our website, beyondthemaskpodcast.com. Welcome to Beyond the Mask, innovation and opportunities for CRNAs with Jeremy Stanley and Sharon Pierce. We know you spend your day caring for your patient's best interests. On our show, we want to care for you. Join us as we leave the operating room and learn the latest in the CRNA industry. Beyond the Mask starts in 10, 9, 8, 7. Welcome to Beyond the Mask. I'm Jeremy Stanley, and I've been working with CRNAs for over 23 years, and I'm married to one. And my co-host is... Sharon Pierce. Sharon's a practicing CRNA for over 20 years, a past president of the ANA, the NCANA, and she's held many other leadership roles. As usual, our goal with every episode is to educate and enlighten CRNAs, and I think our topic today is definitely going to do that. And Sharon, what time is it? It's time to wake up, Jeremy. I think it is. Sharon, welcome to Beyond the Mask. Oh my gosh. Hey, it's in the studio to together? Yeah, no. I love this. I know, except it's yeah. such a pretty day and we're sitting here in the studio. I wish I there was know. some way we could do, do this, this outside. outside. <laughs> hey, it is COVID. You know, maybe we can work something out. Well, you know, we're we on can, the end of COVID. Yeah, that, so that's true. We finally, hope. We hope. I mean, we hope. Yeah, you know, we do uh, hope. Been a long, what, over a year now. Yes, it yeah, has. I mean, it's just crazy to see... All the changes in the last year and all the stuff people have been through and then, you know, kind of coming out, hopefully, on the backside of this thing. Mm-hmm. So, Well, it doesn't seem like a year in some ways. What is it? The days crawl and the years fly. Yeah, that's true. Look at our kids. I know. Right? I know. <laughs> <laughs> and finding out that I'm going to be a... Grandma. <laughs> that kid is not calling me that. <laughs> Grandma Sharon. No. <laughs> well, that's exciting news. Congratulations. Thank you. And, thank you. Thank you. You know, we can officially, you know, talk about because they made a post on Facebook and we're so excited for you guys and them as well. So congratulations. GG. Yes, I'll take that. <laughs> Glitz and glamour. <laughs> uh, well, Sharon, you know, we've got a, a wonderful guest, obviously someone you're very familiar with. Absolutely. Mr. Kevin Driscoll. Welcome, Kevin. Thank you for having me. And Grandma, thank you. <laughs> Uh-oh. We might have started Uh-oh. something here, Sharon. <laughs> GD. Oh, well, you know, we were talking a little bit beforehand, you know, how Kevin kind of convinced Sharon to go to Yale. And, he did. You know, and now he's calling her Grandma, you know. I'm like, <laughs> she really is going to start cursing Kevin Driscoll here. So. Uh, now that I'm on the other end of this experience. So. Yeah. You can look back and say, Thank you, Kevin. (laughs) (laughs) 
thank you for the hundred and some thousand dollar bill and all the hell I went through, but you know. <laughs> all the gastric ulcers. <laughs> That's it. That's it. Actually, uh, I didn't get an ulcer during this. I did get an ulcer my last month of being AANA president, uh, but I didn't, uh, sure. I didn't with this. Well, I guess if you can do that, you can go back to Yale, yes. right? Yes. You know, I mean, yes. that, that kind of sets you up there. This was easy. <laughs> Uh, well, Kevin, you know, we're excited about your, your topic today, and uh, why don't you kind of introduce your topic and tell our listeners a little bit about you and, you know, yeah. bring us into this thing. Sure. Well, I'm doing everything in the opposite of Sharon. So uh, now I'm the current uh, president for the NBCRNA. So I went to Yale before and I thought, oh, I can do anything. Well, I'm developing my ulcers now, too. <laughs> Pepsi um, twice a day for 30 days and you'll be right. <laughs> but whenever I was um, I was at Johns Hopkins and, and working in um, you know doing anesthesia and I was previously deployed on 9-11, and President Bush at the time activated what's called the inactive ready reserve. And this is, hasn't been used since the Vietnam era. And they can call people out of uh, retirement in order to serve. Mm. And so I was called up within four hours of 9-11. And I was deployed overseas as well as to New York City, then Guantanamo Bay, then overseas for the total of two years that they can pull you out on. I've formed phenomenal relationships with many military people. And I still call them to this day. And... Um, when it was all said and done, I don't know anyone in my life that's ever committed suicide. And I you know, hear about suicide. But on April 2nd of 2011, one of the people I was deployed with committed suicide. His name was Charlie Coughlin. And so it, it always crept in the back of my mind because I would talk to him all the time. And I never really picked up on all these cues that he was suffering from PTSD, depression, chronic pain. And then in 2012, Suicide was the number one cause of death among U.S. troops. Mm. And, and not only that, in 2012, more U.S. soldiers, airmen and Marines, died by their own hands than they did in battle. Wow. And if you think about it, we have two huge conflicts going on, but we have more people dying of suicide in, in our veteran population. And then its number came out and it said 22 veterans commit suicide. And you see it on Facebook, people doing 22 push-ups, mm-hmm. and they see it yeah. every day. Yeah. And um, that means one veteran every 65 minutes. Wow. So I went, I went to Yale to actually look at this and as sort of my capstone. I want to see what can I do that can actually provide some relief to these veterans that have sacrificed so much. And the first thing I found out was that actually this 22 veterans day is actually wrong. And the VA knows it. And the majority of those are actually over 50 years old. Okay, wow. So, so there, there's a different number than 22 a day. You're going yeah, to tell us. We think it's a lot. We think it's a lot larger. Uh, well, I guess that would kind of make sense because some people don't want to, I don't know, publicize the fact that that's, that that's what happened. So actually, um, when you look at that 22 number, majority of them are over 50 years old. And those are the people that served Mm -hmm. as Vietnam veterans. Right. And then when you look at the data, they only had a data sharing agreement with 21 states. That's only 40% of the U.S. population. It didn't include two of the largest states, California or Texas, or the fifth largest state, Illinois. And then out of all of that, 40% of that population, 23% of those suicides were thrown out. And the reason that 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 was thrown out is that it didn't have uh, correct data or not complete data. And whenever you look at your data, actually the national death index that the veteran status needs to be cross-checked. 
And oftentimes it's at the mortician that would actually put down sure. by the family members would say you're a veteran or not a veteran. Oh, oh that's true. That's I remember true, yeah. whenever my dad's death certificate, they ask if they're a veteran. Yeah. yeah. And when you look at that data, 60% of females that are veterans are not classified as veterans. Wow. And also people that are younger, unmarried, or lower levels of education, high school education, they tend to not to be classified as veterans when actually they are veterans. Huh. And so when you look at Operation Iraqi Freedom, Operation Enduring Freedom, the Kaiser Family Foundation did a survey and they said, do you know if you're a veteran that served in these conflicts, do you know anyone that's committed suicide? And over 51% of the people said yes. Wow. I know veterans. I know over a dozen veterans that have committed suicide that are part of Operation Iraqi Freedom, Operation Enduring Freedom. I don't know anyone that's committed suicide outside of that in my life. Wow. And so- that shared experience is like maybe one to think, how do we look into this a little bit more? And when I went to the VA and I said, I think this tw- number 22 is wrong. They said, yeah, we know it's wrong. And they go, what do you think about it though? And I said, yeah. I, don't, I don't think you're accounting for the operation Iraqi freedom on during freedom, our current wars. And I go, more of those people actually probably have problems because they're knocking door to door and these in, uh, improvised explosive devices right. are causing traumatic brain injuries. And I said, I think that number is a lot larger. And they said, yeah, we do. But it depends on how people tell their story. So right. you come up with this thing, and now you have people doing 22 push-ups a day for 22 days. You have all these different challenges. But actually, that number is uh, greater. Well, I mean, I mean, it's great to even talk about this. I mean, it's, it's bad that we have to, but it's great to get it out there because there's probably a lot of veterans and a lot of people out there that might be struggling with some of these issues but think that they're alone. They think that... I'm the only one. Why do I feel like this? And I'm sure some of your data obviously probably points to that as well. Yeah, great question. Because actually, I started looking at it. I was like, well, who's at risk for committing suicide? And so I did a literature search. And the things that are positive correlated with suicide really boiled down into four barrels. And that is mental health. So someone that has PTSD or depression or substance abuse, people that have a traumatic brain injury, chronic pain, and previous suicide attempts. And whenever I did this through the literature review and I pointed these out, it was funny because a study came out by National Institutes of Mental Health and they, through their study, they actually validated the same information that I, that I found out through a literature search. And so they were actually going through their records. And if you have any of these diagnoses, it will highlight your record to the provider so that they can actually devil further into questions about suicide with these individuals. But some of the stuff about mental health Depression and PTSD often share an overlapping, uh, overlapping symptoms. And so they're frequently co-occur in Operation Iraqi Freedom and Enduring Freedom veterans. And there's actually has been suggested to treat them as a single disorder rather than as two separate disorders. And the incidence and prevalence of PTSD and depression, when you look at the literature, it's all over the place. Some people say 10%, as high as 30% in a RAND report. Wow. When you look at substance abuse... In a veteran population, they're six times more likely to attempt suicide in their life if they have substance abuse. They're 2.3 times more likely to die from suicide. And in women, there's a 6.5% fold increase in the risk for suicide. Often, as I said, these diseases coexist, so depression, PTSD, but they often coexist with traumatic brain injury as well as chronic pain. Mm -hmm. Wow. And Mm -hmm. chronic pain is the number one healthcare concern for veterans returning. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, I work in a pain clinic. I only give sedation there. 
And it's in Fayetteville, North Carolina. Big military population. Right. And they're all military, obviously, yeah, that right. come in there. I mean, some of the injuries that they've had. And, you know, we'll have young guys there that say, I, I have to run with an 80-pound rucksack on my back. And they have all these back problems. It's just it's just chronic. So, yeah. um, huge, huge piece of that. So, let's fast forward you were at Yale whenever you did this initial research and your mm-hmm. literature search. So what did you do with all of that? And I know this is Jeremy's going to love this whole thing. So why don't you talk about your GIS? Talk about that sure. whole system. Sure. So GIS is actually, a, it's a, when you talk about technology, it's rapid, uh, mo- most rapid growing aspect of technology sector is because you're forming data every day. Whether you're on your cell phone, you're forming data with this podcast. And so really what geographic information systems, it takes data and places it on a geospatial plane and so a ge- in a geographic plane. And so what you can do is you can go through the health record and know the GPS coordinates of all the veterans in the United States. Huh. And then what you do is these four variables that I've classified, you can color code them. And when you color code them, you can look at a map and you can see population densities of high-risk veteran populations. And then you can overlay our transportation grid. And then uh, you can put in the GPS coordinates of all of the VA facilities. And then what you'll find out, like in Connecticut, Connecticut's like a little box. Down in Orange, Connecticut, which is in the Southwest corridor, that's where the VA facility. Mm -hmm. But actually the highest risk for veteran suicide is actually in the Northeast corridor where there is no VA facility. Wow. So whenever you look at this data on these maps, you can actually then say, here's a high risk population that needs a specialty care. And then if you're going to open up a clinic or something, then you would open up a, that would be the perfect place to open it up. And so I was sitting on a flight coming back from Palm Springs and this gentleman kept on seeing me read all these articles about veteran suicide. And he said, why do you care so much about veteran suicide? And I said, well, you know, I had a friend that committed suicide and he asked what I did for a living. I told him that I'm a CRNA. And then I asked him what he did. And he said, well, I work for the government. <laughs> I said, well, I said, I said, well crap, I'm, I pay taxes. He didn't say <laughs> I'm here to help government. you, right? <laughs> yeah. I, I, so, so I said, well, I work for the government. I, I pay taxes. I work for the government too. And so I said, well, really, what do you do? And it was Senator Tom Tillis from North Carolina. Huh. And, I, and I said, oh Who my gosh. Who sits go, on the Veterans Committee. Yeah, he sits on the veteran subcommittee. I go, you sit on the veter- uh, the VA Senate subcommittee. And he goes, yes. And I go, and do you realize 12% of your population are veterans in, in North Carolina? And, I, and he said, yes. And I go, and so what's really interesting about data and what you're looking at his data is that although you can track all these people whenever they, um, that they have these disease processes and identify high-risk populations or what they call healthcare access deserts, where there's a high risk of population, but they don't have the facilities to treat them. Hmm. But then there's another aspect you can look at. It's called the metadata. And the metadata is the data behind the data when they enter things in. And if you look at the metadata in North Carolina, when some of these Marines come home, you see a spike based off the time they enter this data for traumatic brain injuries. Hmm. And based off of that, you can actually, without even knowing who these people are, I could predict this group, there's something in common. They must have all been together or something. And then sure enough, it's a whole group that were in Mosul together or in Fallujah for some of the, the major ramp-ups for the war. And whenever you look at traumatic brain injury, you know, there's a higher incidence now because of these improvised explosive devices. 
And before we used to call it shell shock, right. mm-hmm. combat stress. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But now we're really beginning to understand that all these same uh, terminology is all related to traumatic brain injuries. Wow. And that's what we're trying to, that and PTSD. And so I think our Vietnam veterans are forgotten era yeah. that we just said, oh, they're, they're just messed up because of the war. But really they had PTSD and traumatic brain injuries and we really did nothing for them. And they were sort of a lost generation. Wow. So what do you do with this data now that you have it? Well, hopefully you don't commit HIPAA violations. True. <laughs> oh, well, That's you know true. what? That is true. I yeah. mean, if you identify these people, what, anyway, my brain's going crazy right now. Go ahead and talk you, to me. You, you share it. You're, you're right on the trail of, of what the problem was. If you identify less than 10 people in a census tract with a certain type of disease process, it is a HIPAA violation. Wow. I did not wait, realize wait, wait, wait. Less than, uh, where did this number come from? I mean, that sounds crazy. Yeah. And this data is so granular that I can zoom in and I can even zoom in and say that you're the person I can zoom in on your house and yeah. say, there is someone right there. And so you can identify these people. So you have to be very careful how you lock down this data. Uh-huh. Wow. So this is, I mean, this is really interesting because it's a, uh, it's like big brother, watching and knowing number one so i mean you know to me it's a little scary that we can do this but it also can be used for good in this situation so kevin as you were doing this was there anything that kind of you know challenged your thinking or made you kind of stop and think huh you know i believed one way but actually the data points in a different direction uh, yeah, but the, what do we always, when we think of data, we think of traditional, like I'm creating data, but what we don't really think of is that there's other people out there that are creating data and you can utilize their data to help inform your questions. Hmm. And so an example, we said, we talked about big brother. Well, actually, if anyone has a Fitbit and I think Sharon, <laughs> I saw something on your hand when I watch or something. Yes. Yes. So, yes. Okay. So you're one of those culprits. But, <laughs> The Fitbit database is actually a private database, the Strativa database. And if you look at all the Fitbit activity in the whole world, you start to see Fitbit activity in Africa. Now, I guarantee you, not many people in Africa have Fitbits. You go to a country like Niger and you see a big little dot. You zoom in on that dot and you overlay commercial satellite imagery. And what you're seeing is patterns that are in the desert. Those patterns are soldiers that are actually getting exercise by running on the streets of their base. And what you just uncovered was a secret drone base that no one knows about. Oh, wow. Crazy. (laughs) Well, you know, if if you can do that, I mean, any government, anybody could tap that data. I mean, does our government even know about this, Kevin? Or did you bring it to their attention on that flight with Tom Tillis? You know, (laughs) The government does know about this. They know about it in such a big way that whenever you get deployed, they're having blackouts, IT blackouts, Uh, because otherwise you'd know troop transports. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. When you go over to Afghanistan and stuff like that, people that are shooting at us are usually not shooting at us with American-made weapons. Right. And so they're usually shooting at us with Russian-made or Chinese-made weapons which have a different pitch and tone to them. So if you put down listening beacons and someone's shooting at you, you can triangulate the sound. And when you triangulate that sound, you can actually get pinpoint the people that are shooting at you. You could drop ordinance on them with, with precision, knowing that they're probably not your friend. Yeah. And then you drop a bomb or two, right? On yep. those, yeah. Or send a drone in. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. The, bomb, the, the drones drop most of the bombs nowadays, I think. Yeah. So. 
uh, with targeted precision. So. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, this is interesting I knew you would love I mean, this. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, yeah. even in politics, they're utilizing this stuff. And uh, during sure. the um, when I gave a talk about this, I mentioned about a, a company from UK. No one knew who this company was. Well, it's Cambridge Analytica. Yeah, everybody and knows now. <laughs> yeah, everyone knows about them now. But what they do is there's Google, Amazon, use marketing data. And we all fit into 54 categories of marketing data. So me, they call me a suburban latte person. That's my profile. And it is 100% accurate where I shop, where I eat. So what the strata, what they did with, um, with Cambridge Analytica is they put in all the GPS coordinates of all the Hillary Clinton signs and all the Donald Trump signs in states that he was winning. They then overlay the marketing data, geospatial marketing data, and identify who are these people that actually are voting for Trump from a marketing mix. Then what they do is they go to states and reverse engineer the map. They say, out of these 54 categories of marketing data, we only care about these 20 uh, categories. So where are these 20 categories of people in this state? Then you can target them with laser precision. And that's how you win electoral colleges and census tract uh, votes is by utilizing data this way. Kevin, how'd you find out that you're a suburban latte? Because I want to know what the heck I am, you know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah, because I I went through the database and this is actually, um, it's a feed uh, GIS database. And so I paid a fee just to search it. And it says we have 54 categories of marketing data. What I did is I actually looked at my location where I live and that's what they pulled it up. And it is 100% accurate where I shop, where I eat, where I get my news. And this is the same type of thing that was developed out of Wharton. It's called discongruent analysis. In discongruent analysis, if I ask Sharon, Sharon, what kind of car do you want? And Sharon says, I want something economical that gets good gas mileage is cheap. But then she pulls up in a Hummer H2. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So what that is, is discongruent analysis looks at not what you say, but what is actually happening in your subconscious. And that's actually why in Amazon, when you go shopping for stuff for grandma, you're going to see other stuff in the feed. <laughs> that, that grandma probably would like this because it actually puts it in the, in the database and comes up with more things that you probably would like because based off of your previous buys, your previous likes. It's the same thing with Amazon. You watch this, you're probably going to like this. Mm-hmm. I know. I don't look wow. at those feeds. Wow. I really don't. When it pops up recommended for you, I do not look at that. <laughs> I'm a sucker. I do it. <laughs> Have you thought about what would happen if you weren't able to work for two or three years? You know, on average, 25% of people will file a disability claim, and most of us aren't prepared for that loss of income. Every CRNA needs to protect their biggest asset, yourself and your ability to earn with a disability insurance policy. We recommend contacting Robert Smith, a master disability insurance specialist with more than 30 years of experience and 1,800 CRNA clients to find the coverage that fits you best. The best way to do that is to send him an email at rsmithjr at financialguide.com. That's rsmithjr at financialguide.com. Or call him at 504-394-6557. So how do you, I mean, this is a very low technical question. How do you get to this data? I mean, you keep talking about going in. I mean, can anybody get to this data or talk to me about that? Yeah, it's a, g- a great question, Jeremy, because some of the data out there is publicly available. Some of it's private. And uh, you even, you know, at your healthcare facility, you're creating data. 
And the Affordable Care Act is actually trying to move people into population health. So this is actually the best tool to look at populations because why spend all this money on the best diabetic care when actually you're not serving a, di- a great need for diabetic people, right. like a diabetic population? Yeah. These are all uh, things to think about for me. You know, I serve on the Diabetes Advisory Council in North Carolina, and I've never asked these questions at our meetings. Are we, uh, yeah. are we putting programs exactly where it meets the needs of the population? I have never asked any of those questions. I mean, they'll come in and they'll tell about this great new program and such and such town. Oh, great job. But I've never asked, is that where they're at using data like this? Yeah, and actually they use the same data for if you're going to put up a new police department, a new fire station. If, if you're trying to look for the, the best place to put it, you would actually uh, use geographic information systems. Yeah, well, you McDonald's can put the has this forever, haven't they? <laughs> no, they just bought yeah. the best land on the corner. <laughs> yeah, that's Ray Kroc's strategy, right? <laughs> but it brings up so many questions. Yeah, it does. Um, I mean, just it, to me, I mean, I'll just give you this running for office. You know, the Democrats have had this for a long time, walking maps. Republicans did not really have great walking maps for door knocking. We had to create basically our walking maps whenever I was going door to door. So I could just hire somebody to geographically overlay all of this stuff and know where I need to go and who I need to talk to. Or where to spend, if, you, if your time is a resource, time's limited. Yeah. If you're going to spend your time to get people, where's the best place to spend your time? And mm-hmm. money, for that matter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, we, I think we could take this down. Oh, Kevin, we could do so many things with this. But, I, you know, I kind of want to get back to, you know, talking about how you utilize this to help with veteran suicide and, you know, some of the positive things that have come out of this data as well. So really, after I started creating the, ma- uh, the maps, we actually utilize the maps internally because it informs you just sort of like what Sharon was talking about. If you're going to spend your time, where are you going to spend your time wisely? So if you look at health policy and planning, whenever you see these maps, you can identify and put down the transportation grid. And if you want to make a promise to every veteran that you will be within two hours of a high fidelity center for suicide, this is how you would identify them wow. because you would know where the high risk population is. You can put down the transportation grid and you can put down an hour, two hour uh, time distance rings. And it knows all of the roads and it's calculating the distance that you can move. So it creates these maps around your population of how much you'll capture within a certain period. How is this being utilized to help our veterans? You know, you know that's, a, that's what I keep thinking in the back of my mind here is, you know, is the government buying into this? Are they doing things to make sure that our veterans are taken care of? The Veterans Association has actually dived really deep into GIS, that they're actually helping create bait, what they call base maps. So one of the base maps they created are all the veteran facilities in the whole United States. So instead of me going through their list and geocoding yeah. each of their facilities, yeah. they've already done that work for oh, us. Oh, wow. And here I work at the National Institutes of Health, and every year we're invited to the federal GIS summit where we bring in everyone from national security to the VA to um, the FAA to actually talk about our GIS problems. And they help us provide solutions because they will partner with us to um, and the company that makes uh, one of the most powerful softwares, Esri, ESRI. 
out of Redland, California, they have offices in every major city. And so if you have a problem and you want to learn a little bit more, you can contact their office and they will work with you and they'll give you a specialist. Um, So there is certification in GIS and anesthesia. I'm one of the only people that in in all of our uh, CRNA population is actually going for GIS certification. All right. Well, I guess back to Jeremy's question and Obviously, HIPAA is an underlying problem to this, but when you identify these at-risk populations, how do they push out to them to offer them help? I guess that's yeah. what I'm trying to find out. Yeah, so actually, once you identify that population, usually you're identifying that population in relation to a healthcare access desert. Mm-hmm. So it means that you have a high-risk population, but there are no facilities around mm-hmm. them. Okay. to actually provide that care. So what you would do is the VA would utilize this internally and say, here's a high-risk population. We need to put a uh, clinic up there okay. that focuses and specializes on suicide. Then before I left Yale, I was talking to a company called Star Star Mobile. And Star Star Mobile, their campaigns, if you put in Star Star anything, they will connect, they'll ping your cell phone to the three nearest cell phone towers and provide you all the resources in that area. Oh, wow. So what we said would be the next aspect would be to Star Star Mobile Vets. And if you do that, or Star Star uh, Suicide, and they would tell you all the suicide uh, resources that you have, whether they be private or public, mm-hmm. so that people can get help. But that was the next phase that I never got to, uh, to work on yet, but uh, the VA is starting to look into. Mm, wow. All right. So let's talk about some other uses of this GIS. You talked about being the only CRNA who's certified in GIS. So what else have you done with this? Maybe within our community? Well, before I actually, uh, there's a, I got in a car accident and I was seeing an optometrist for my eyes and she was complaining about a scope of practice battle in the state. Ah, and I sounds said, familiar. Is your scope of practice? I don't know. <laughs> so what is actually interesting, I said, can you get me the addresses of all the ophthalmologists and all the optometrists in our state? And so she provided them to me. What I then did is I actually geocoded them. And then I put out down the population density of the Maryland area. And what you find out is that in Eastern Maryland or the Eastern shore, optometrists predominantly practice in that area. So if you do not increase their scope of practice, you're disproportionately adversely risking that population from providing care. And what they're trying to push for was just be able to write for antibiotic prescriptions and stuff like that mm-hmm. for uh, so, mm-hmm. uh, ophthalmic antibiotics. Mm-hmm. But I've actually, um, when I was with the NBCRNA, I said, well, let's see what I can do with a couple of beers and some data. Mm-hmm. And so I <laughs> sat in the basement and I put down all the GPS coordinates of all of the CRNAs in the nation. Huh. And then I decided, well, since we're looking at certification, the anesthesiologists use simulation, but now they abandoned it. Why did they abandon it? Well, I put down the GPS coordinates of all of the VA facility, I mean, all of the simulation center- centers. And what you realize is that 21 states, don't have a simulation center Uh and that less than 20% of the population, even the CRNA population would be within a two hour driving range of a simulation center. So 80% of CRNAs would have to go further than two hours to get to a sim lab. If that was our recredentialing. Yep. And also it, and also it's 21 states don't even have one. Wow. So so you would have to go out of states. 
Wow. And, and really, the 21 states that don't have it is where CRNAs practice a lot in rural, rural sure. settings. So we go to Montana, Montana Idaho, yeah. Iowa, Idaho, and stuff like that. There's very few facilities out there. And some of the facilities that they have are grouped like you have three in Chicago, you have mm-hmm. two in the Washington, D.C. area. So where there's a, a high population, but really a high population of people, but maybe not CRNAs. But Kevin, uh, I mean, you really don't need them there, right? Because all the anesthesiologists live there and they give anesthetics, right? <laughs> yes, yes. So they, they've abandoned um, this is a requirement because it was actually not only do you talk about the cost. Sure. and the high fidelity nature of simulation, but the feasibility of doing it. And so if they would have just used GIS before they rolled this out, wow. they could have seen this problem well be- ahead of time. And so I was talking to the NBCRNA saying, really, we should probably just publish this data because I don't think people would understand. actually, yeah. yeah, they would understand that this is another problem about simulation, which we may not think of off the surface. And that's why sometimes pictures paint a better story mm-hmm. than yeah. actually just telling the story. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Wow. That's, uh, I mean, just to kind of sit here and listen to this, it sounds like, you know, we've been using, you know, kind of a shotgun splattered approach. And this is more like a laser you're focusing in on really what's important and the data we need to be paying attention to. Is that kind of the, the, the yeah, summarization and, 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 of it? Yeah, and how you how how laser focused you can get is actually pretty amazing. Because when I looked at the simulation stuff, I actually zoomed in zoomed in on one of the houses of our, one of our board members, and and he said, "Well, this is a little freaky." Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, hey, you they, need to mow your grass, buddy. They they do that whenever they do the redistricting. I mean, it's, yeah, uh, sure. Yeah, I've seen it in action and how they draw the lines, and it is exactly what he's saying. Wow. And that's why if you look in North Carolina and in redistricting in North Carolina, you have like this little piece of Charlotte and then it stretches right into the rural area. Mm-hmm. And, right. and they utilize this to really paint things into their favor. And you can paint things into your favor with this. And people follow patterns. So the FBI utilizes this right. because people that are serial rapists or serial killers, they tend to follow patterns. And so you put in the patterns of all of of all like the deaths or the rapes, usually you can pinpoint where this person probably geographically where that you should focus that they probably live. Wow. Wow. <laughs> I, I, yeah. I think we've said wow uh, 30 times during well, you know, this I, I, podcast. I did, uh, there was a book, I'm trying to remember who wrote it. it was, he was an ex-FBI guy and he talked about a lot of this and, you know, how they pick out patterns mm-hmm. and, you know, how they, they get their man or woman, you know, in the end, because we as human beings do repeat mm-hmm. over and over, and we have certain ways that we do things. But he, in in there, they also talked about people that could control some of that, their pattern. And it was very, a very small portion of society, but there were people that, you know, whether they did it intentionally or not intentionally, that could change those patterns and I guess you'd kind of call them an outlier did you in your studies did you see any of that outlier mentality Kevin no but when we um when I try to teach this to people a good book I use is um looking at the cholera outbreak in in England Mm -hmm. yes and so what you do is you get the death records in London and then you geocode all the death records and then you can do a thing called kerneling which is hmm. it creates a mountain of death. 
and say, so mm. where's probably looking at all this death, where do we think that the focus is all this death based off of kerneling? And it pinpoints directly that same pump that they pulled the uh, handle from. Yeah. Oh, wow. It's called Ghost Map. We had huh, to. I haven't. Right? Ghost yeah. Map. Yeah, Ghost Map. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We I use that same book. It. Yeah. We had to read that whenever I first started at Yale. And it's wow. talking about the cholera outbreak. And his name was John Snow. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, the I doctor who figured it out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I use that same book because it's easy to follow mm-hmm. for healthcare workers. And they, they know, understand death. Mm-hmm. And then they understand, well, how do we pinpoint where the problem is? And so when we put in the GPS coordinates of all these people that died uh, using their old maps. And then we do kerneling. Boom. You, you have the, the direct post of that was causing all the problems. Well, I'm sure they're doing this for COVID. I mean, finding oh, yeah. patient zero. I yeah. mean, they did it for AIDS. Uh, I'm sure it was all in the infancy in the eighties, but they identified who patient zero was. What was yeah. it? The flight attendant that had, yeah, traveled right. all over. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. John, Johns Hopkins University. Whenever everyone's going to the Johns Hopkins website for the COVID, yeah, tracking COVID, they're using this software. To wow. Track it. wow. Yeah. Wow. Well, Wake Forest Baptist is you know they're doing the same thing right. here, right? Um, mm-hmm. Because they've studies, got the so. app. Yeah. And then, you know, I sit on the plan giving advisory board. So they gave us, you know, we had to feed in our data every day and so forth. And they're tracking all the data. I mean, it was, it was really interesting. I haven't been to a meeting in a couple of months, but right. uh, shame on me. But yeah, it's, it's always Back interesting to kind of see the data. <laughs> Beyond the Mask is made possible by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. With almost two decades of experience, the firm guides CRNAs through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Schedule a free consultation today by calling 855-304-3748 or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. So Kevin, I mean, I'm just blown away by one, the data use of this, but how, how can CRNAs, SRNAs, how do we utilize, you know, some of this data in the CRNA world Mm -hmm. to help out? I mean, because obviously we have, we have a lot of veterans in the population. Obviously SRNAs are under a a tremendous amount of, of stress in, you know, their education pattern here. Are there other uses for this? And if so, how do you see that being done? Great question. I think when, um, I think if we started to look at, uh, started to geocode the suicides in the SRNA population, we can start to see if we see trends. Is it a regional trend or is it a national trend? Is it school specific or is it clinical site related? So I think that that's a little bit harder to tease out. But for CRNAs, I think there's many things that, some things we've already touched on. We look at scope of practice battles. When you look at population served, that's a a great way to use this. When you're talking about rural versus urban populations, how we're serving them. When you're looking at payment models, when you're looking at health disparity research, and you're talking about people that have access to care. So someone just reached out to me recently because they wanted to look at hepatitis and people getting treatment for hepatitis. Now, we don't know if people are getting the treatment or not. So we're trying to think of a creative way to look at this data and say, we know who does have hepatitis because that's CDC tracked. As far as looking at people getting the treatment, we do know from the pharmacy companies and their data set, which they'll give give us, if they've shipped out the medication and that if a prescription has been filled. 
And so this is how you can use different databases to sort of come up to your, figure out what your problem is or a solution to your problem. And so this is where you have to be a little bit creative. And sometimes in school, we're not taught to be creative. That's sort of broken out of us. As you know, in anesthesia training, <laughs> you, you had certain preceptors. You had to label a certain way. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, that's true. And, and so when you talk about innovation and how do you be innovative in, in healthcare, you want to talk about divergent thoughts. So dreaming. And so kids do this the best. When you ask a kid to draw something, they come up with these weird ligards and stuff like that. But when you ask us to draw something, it's just like a little smiley face. Nothing, nothing too. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so how could we use this? I'm just trying to think about how we could use the data, say, in a specific state to look yeah. at the the deserts, I guess, as you, as you call yeah. it. And the only problem we've had traditionally with data with CRNAs, and we've had this within the AANA, is where you work and where you live might be different. So I actually live in, you know, 27529, but I work in another zip code. And mm. where do you, I mean, it's a, it's a problem with us trying to get all of this. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, you're, you're bringing up a good point. It's called the veracity of data that the data has to be that has to be timely and accurate. And this is something that I, the two-year check-in that the NBCRNA does, this has become people have said, oh, this is just a money grab money and stuff. Grab. Oh, mm. Yeah, it's, nothing has changed. But actually, 20% of all CRNAs changed Move. their data mm -hmm. whenever they did that. Huh. So yeah, 20%, that was in 2018, 20% were changing their data. Wow. And so then you, if you really want to be able to, to utilize this and utilize uh, GIS really well, you need to make sure that you have the most accurate data possible. So on a state level, you might not be able to get help from the nationals. They might be able to give you general data, but really it's a grassroots efforts to make sure that the veracity of that data is very good. And so you need to make sure that you understand where someone works. And then what you can do is if you go up before your, your legislature, I would say, tell a story with pictures. Yeah. So what you do is you bring out maps and you show where CRNAs and population densities, where CRNAs are practicing. And then you can say, this is how much coverage that we are providing in your state. You can then tell the reverse story. Here's where the anesthesiologists are and look what they're covering. And what you're going to find out is oh, that no. in, in rural areas, we provide a, a lion's share of the care. Wow. It, it makes you wonder if the AANA ought to look at having a division exactly of this yeah. right within the association. And I just liken it back to back in the old days with DRGs. And we were finding out there were problems with billing because the bills for CRNAs went in when the when the hospital bill went in at the end and the anesthesiologist bills went in oh. first, so they weren't mm. reimbursed. So right. long story right. short to say we hired somebody yeah. um, within the AANA back then. So this might be something that might be worthwhile for the organization to look at. Yeah, we can um, get Kevin another job. Yeah, you know? Kevin. You I mean, can look start at this. plotting. <laughs> How long does it take you to actually plot something? You said you set up with some beers in your basement and started plotting. Yes. How long yes. does that take? <laughs> And yeah, how, how does the plotting go as you drink more beers? I yeah. mean, that would be another yeah, thing. I'd be my, my maps look a lot better. 
<laughs> so what I do have is in my basement, I have a movie screen that mm-hmm. I pull down mm-hmm. and I usually use a projector because mm-hmm. ever since my accident, my eyesight yes. just to focus on a screen becomes a lot harder. Mm-hmm. So I project it up on the whole wall. Sure. So you're talking about a nine foot wall by 14 feet. Yeah. And then what I do is if you can trust the data, like the NBCRNA data, I could trust. Right. Because the, I know that it's addresses and that's mm-hmm. very right. easy as geocoded data. Right. Mm-hmm. Then the other aspects of knowing simulation centers, very easy. It's an address. Sure. So you can easily geocode that. And then you have different layers you can throw in that are already pre-done for you. Right. So if, like if transportation. Phone, yeah. Exactly. So Google Maps, when they know that this road you can go 35 miles per hour on, they even know where all the speed cameras are. And so, right. Yeah. So they can actually, they whenever I print up these maps, you're going to see these very rough edges, how far you can travel from that specific location if you were to take every route possible. And so before we used to not be able to do this because if I would ask a computer to do my map, it would take 20, 30 years to generate one map. Mm -hmm. But now I send it over to Amazon Web Services to all these empty servers in Northern Virginia and it can create my map in seconds and flip it back to me. Wow. And so this is why this is becoming the most cutting edge. And now with net neutrality, the person that has the most money is going to have control or access to the internet. Right. So even Google is worried about this with their data centers. Yeah. So they created yeah. this thing called Snowball, which is an 18-wheeler. It's like a big USB drive that will come right next to your building and data that's not sensitive. What they will do is you can actually have that suck it all up and then you can drive it to the, um, to the data warehouse and offload it. And that would be cheaper than utilizing the internet. Wow. <laughs> this is like the twilight zone. <laughs> it really is. I mean, golly. It's, we are yeah, nothing but amazing. a data point. <laughs> yeah. yeah. When I talked to the NBCRNA about it and I said, you know what, we're going to talk about this, but you're going to feel like you're at a ketamine clinic. Yeah. Because- well, speaking of <laughs> well, yeah, that, that's another, yeah. you know, yeah. like you could overlay the data for North Carolina. Let's say I want to open up a ketamine clinic and we have a huge veteran population. Yeah. You could actually overlay the data and say, okay, here's this your population spot. that is yeah. at risk. Sharon, I think you need to, to look at it, putting it here. Yeah. And also, whenever you look at these, I said these four variables that you're looking at, you might find out that you might be opening up a ketamine clinic to treat PTSD. But really, what you need is a substance abuse that may be more prevalent. Yeah. And so then you can say, you know what, opening a ketamine clinic may not be as well as opening up a substance abuse uh, center Mm -hmm. in in that area. And a lot of veterans tend to have substance abuse and also alcoholism because it sort of helps quiesce and calm the brain. Sure. And so they self-medicate themselves. Yeah. I get that. <laughs> wow. And you know, yeah. I mean, what I heard you say is we're only at the beginning point of a lot of this data. It'll be interesting, Kevin, as you look back five years from now, 10 years from now, this being the starting point, what we do with this data during that time period. Yeah. You know, I'm I, from the NBCRNA standpoint, I'm pushing our board and saying you really, it's just not about taking a test anymore. We need to understand what does Sharon know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That provides us data yeah. because then you can individualize everything and you can tailor everything. Mm-hmm. And so the more data that we have, the better decision-making we can ha- that we can uh, make. So one of the companies, uh, Google, they're going all in and it's called TensorFlow, which is machine learning. So it looks over your data and sees if it can do predictive analytics. So we'd know if you're going to fail before you fail. 
Now, I don't know the answer to this question, and you two probably do, but you know, I think of CRNA clients that I have. I think of my wife as a CRNA. Do they track the types of cases that, you know, by your NPI number, what type of cases that you do first? And if they did, kind of to your point, Kevin, you know, if you're if you're never in doing hearts or, you know, you're you're doing eyes or you're doing, you know, plastics or whatever, should we tailor that education pattern around that? Or are we being too broad then? If you know, if that CRNA never walks into a hospital, they're always in a you know, an outpatient clinic somewhere, should they still be educated on things that maybe they aren't using or should we focus more on? So those are the things that are going through my mind right now. So I'll let you take it from there. Well, our credential is a generalist credential. And I think it's very important that we keep it a generalist credential because if we, although we come out and we decide, okay, I really prefer doing pediatrics or, or this or that, that if we start creating a lot of micro credentials, what I'm, I'm fearful of is that, now that the Affordable Care Act, you've seen a bunch of ho- big hospital chains start buying up these smaller rural right. hospitals. Right. And if they make a decision saying, you know what, if you want to do any pediatrics, then you need to be PED certified. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, then you might have a little rural hospital out in Appalachia that does a lot of PEDS dental for Medicaid kids. Right. And they might not have someone. So you can be creating a healthcare access desert by micro credentialing ourselves to the point that the big mothership, which really doesn't understand how things work out in a rural setting, can put a policy in effect that can actually create more problems and disparities than actually address them. I mean, that's a good point because, you know, Mm -hmm. I I heard, I mean, I've been around a little bit and heard about this mean test that people were going to have to take and how bad it was. And a lot of CRNAs said, you know, hey, I never do that. Why in the heck do I need to do this? You know, I I never do these types of cases. And, you know, that's not something I, I do on a daily basis. Why do I need to know that? But to your point, I think that's very important for our listeners to hear because if we do create a lot of generalists and then something changes in the industry, we're going to be scrambling to either re-educate ourselves or we're going to be more subservient than you already are to... Well, it's happened in medicine already. That's why they're looking for primary care practitioners because medicine has become so specialized and how long would it take you as a seasoned professional to go back i mean i haven't done children pediatric dental in a few years but how long is it really going to take me to get back up to speed right right exactly if you if you you go to austere conditions like africa they would prefer to have a european trained surgeon than an american trained surgeon oh sure because they can American operate train- with a spoon over there if they have to. <laughs> yeah, and, and they, they most of the cases are orthopedic or GYN. But if you have someone doing a general surgery, they never do orthopedics or, or GYN. Mm. And so they become almost worthless. But you, re- you raise a good point about the mean test because as this is where you can our profession could be penny wise but pound foolish. Yeah. This is our only opportunity to get this data. On what do CRNAs that are practicing really know? And what do they need? Yeah. And what do they not know? Exactly. I mean, educational institutions should be clamoring for this information. Yeah. And so that's why I, I, whenever I give a CPC lecture, I focus on people and say, this is a, a golden opportunity to get this data. We will never get this data again. 
But this data can inform so many decisions going forward that it's critical. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Well, Kevin, uh, this has been amazing. I think we could probably continue to talk about this for for two hours and, you know, continue to learn about the stuff that that you've done here and continue to do. And first, we want to thank you for all your service to the CRNA community. You're doing a great job. And obviously, it shows you're passionate about this. And the whole reason you got involved with this is because you had a personal experience, like so many people that take action have Mm -hmm. personal experiences. So, but we want to thank you for being on the show today. And before we conclude, I'd like to turn it over to you and see if there's anything you'd like to tell our audience and conclude on. No, I would, I would like to first thank you uh, for allowing me to have this uh, platform to talk not only about something I'm very passionate about as uh, veteran suicide. And I would encourage any CRNA that if you have a passion that's burning in the back of your mind, that pursue it mm-hmm. because in your life, looking back, it's easier to connect the dots looking back than it is looking forward. I never thought I would be here and that this would have bloomed into so many different things if I didn't pursue this with just an inquiry. And so be hungry for knowledge and realize that our profession, we will not always be perfect, but we're trying to get closer to perfect. And that takes time, it takes data, and it takes talent. Yep. I think that's a a perfect thing to end on here. So Sharon, I think it's a wrap. I think so. One more thing. Kevin, what branch did you serve? Uh, this is going to sound like a, a long story here. I was the Coast, with the Coast Guard okay. deployed under Navy orders with a Marine Corps unit. Oh, my goodness. Well, thank you for <laughs> your service, service, yeah, service. <laughs> and I was stationed at an Army base. So oh, wow. Service. <laughs> <laughs> well, all the branches work together is what you're telling us. That, that's good to know. <laughs> one team, one fight. Uh, all right. Well, we want to thank our listeners for listening to Beyond the Mass with Jeremy Stanley and Jaron Pierce. If you like our show, you know the single best way to help us grow, Sharon, is to like us, subscribe, share us, tell all your friends. <laughs> tell all your friends. That's right. You know, we're in the top 50 medical podcasts. Mm-hmm. And we'd like to be in the top 10 on our way to... Number one. There you go. Until next time. It's a wrap. As a CRNA, you spend years preparing yourself for this career, so we don't want to see you lose out on any of the income you've worked so hard to earn. The best way to protect yourself and give you the confidence that a major life event won't disrupt your financial future is through disability insurance. We've known disability income specialist Robert Smith for many years and have seen the work he's done with nearly 2,000 CRNAs over multiple decades. He can help identify any gaps in your existing coverage and fill those gaps by finding the best value on a policy. Contact Robert and let him know you heard about him on our podcast. Send him an email at rsmithjr at financialguide.com. That's rsmithjr at financialguide.com. Or call him at 504-394-6557. Protect your greatest asset as a CRNA, yourself and your ability to earn a living by adding disability insurance to your financial plan. Today's show is brought to you by the folks at CRNA Financial Planning, an independent consulting firm that offers financial planning services exclusively to CRNAs and their families. From planning for a child's future college expenses to building a predictable income stream in retirement, the firm is committed to offering you comprehensive financial services customized to fit your unique needs and objectives. If you have questions about your financial future, get them answered. 
Call the team at 855-304-3748. That's 855-304-3748. Or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. Hi, this is Jackie Rolls, President of the International Federation of Nurse Anesthetists and President and Founder of Our Hearts, Your Hands, a global anesthesia support community that takes donations to allow nurse anesthetists in low and middle income countries to go to educational programs, buy equipment or textbooks. Your donations are tax deductible and we would appreciate your support. OSA EMR is a free anesthesia EMR developed by CRNAs that you can download and use on an iPad. Our nonprofit mission is to make sure that solo and small practice CRNAs can digitally record their anesthetics. To learn more, visit OSAEMR.com to download and consider donating to our cause. Remember, for CRNAs, data is destiny. Be sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere you like to listen to shows. Also, be sure to check out beyondthemaskpodcast.com. Each episode is posted there with a corresponding blog post, and we timestamp important parts of the episode to help you quickly get to the content you're looking for. Also, check out the special series section on the site. You can follow along and catch up on the CRNA History Series, episodes specifically about political conversations in the industry, or try the CRNA Personal Finance Series. It's all on beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And if you have a question for the show or want to be a guest or even suggest a particular topic, fill out the contact form on the site or send an email directly to us at info at beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And lastly, let's take the conversation social. Check out our Beyond the Mask podcast Facebook page and Facebook group.